Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast, where we talk with prominent healthcare thought leaders about emerging themes in healthcare IT. I'm your host, Matthew Albright, and I serve as the Communication Committee Chair for Weedy. That's W-E-D-I, Weedy, and Weedy is the producer of this podcast. Weedy is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments. Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simple, simplify and save on their payments and claims. I'd also like to introduce this podcast producer, Michael McNutt, Director of Education and Events for Weedy. He's also the owner of that, that big movie announcer's voice at the beginning of the show. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Anytime we can talk video games before the show is a good day. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, I needed some pointers. We are excited today to talk with Anish Chopra, the first chief technology officer of the United States appointed under the Obama administration. Anish also previously served as Virginia's Secretary of Technology and is co-founder and president of Care Journey, a leading provider of analytics for value-based provider networks. Anish is also the author of the book, The Innovative State, How New Technologies Can Transform Government. In that book, he writes about how technology can help make our government and our society more open, participatory, and collaborative. Certainly a hopeful future using data and technology. Anish, we are very excited to talk about all of this today and honored to have you on our show. You are very kind. Uh, honored to be with you. <laughs> good. Very good. So to start off uh, on the show, we, we like to find out uh, how healthcare IT thought leaders, such as yourself, have gotten uh, uh, roped into this industry. Uh, you know, digital health, health IT, healthcare in general, all superheroes have an origin story. Uh, and I think what's fascinating is sometimes many of our thought leaders start off in much different disciplines. But what struck me about your educational experience is that it looks like from a very early age, uh, you knew where you're headed. Your undergraduate degree was in health policy. Uh, so tell us more about your origin story. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. So uh, it, it'll start with education, but it'll end with a, a, a bus ride with John Halamka. So we'll, we'll have a oh, nice like little it. journey. Uh, uh, just to briefly summarize, I uh, was passionate about government from early childhood, uh, had been uh, sort of a disciple of a, a man by the name of Sim, Sam Petroda, who uh, came to the U.S. from India, uh, you know, like many do, uh, penniless, you know, graduate student, uh, found himself as an entrepreneur uh, building digital uh, switches in the telecommunications industry, sold his company and moved to India on a penny a year salary to connect every village in the country to modern communication systems. Back in the 80s, this is your phone lines. He inspired me to think about problem solving through innovation. And as I went to college, uh, we were in the midst of one of the biggest uh, policy debates on healthcare reform. It was the early 90s, uh, Bill Clinton had been elected, uh, uh, his wife, Hillary Clinton, had been asked to lead the task force. And uh, being a Johns Hopkins undergraduate student, I was sort of on a frontline uh, view uh, to this uh, discussion. And being involved in student government, whatever, I was connected to our university president who led the state of Maryland's version of the Clinton healthcare reform program. Uh, 
long story short, uh, was passionate about the ways we could make the system work better. Found myself at Morgan Stanley uh, Investment Banking, which may not be a natural place to go for a health policy leader, but had interest in uh, sort of financial markets and to see what it would do for healthcare to unlock more capital uh, to modernize. Uh, my colleagues took a little company called Netscape Public, and I was curious about the whole internet thing to see whether or not this new muscle in the uh, communications uh, economy could be applied to healthcare. And that led me to John Halamka and the bus ride. John and I shared the M2 shuttle bus. Uh, I used to uh, attend a graduate school at the Kennedy School, but I lived in Boston. My, uh, my buddy, John, was a grad student at MIT. And uh, we met and learned about a project he had launched to connect the legacy EHR systems across two merging enterprises, the Beth Israel and the Deaconess, using internet-based technologies to essentially synthesize the medical record without having to rip and replace the guts of the system. That vision of low-cost fragmentation uh, through the internet coordination uh, became a big passion of mine. And over the course of the remainder of my career, I'd been thinking about ways to bring internet-based technologies into the DNA of healthcare operators with a focus on the value-based care movement that had been the hallmark of where the original Clinton plan was gonna take us and where I think Obamacare has, and we're building on, on that progress from, from now. Great. Great story. I, I love the idea of uh, the MIT riding a bus uh, with the uh, Harvard School of Government student, and and it's almost like you're, uh, what you're interested in now is a metaphor of of, of engineering technology meets uh, you know how to think about government. Uh, you served right. as the right, so you served as the first CTO of the United States, and then you started Care Journey. So tell us a bit more about Care Journey. Uh, what are you doing there, and uh, what are you most excited about? Yeah, and it, it relates closely to the time I served as chief technology officer. There, there were three things on the healthcare delivery reform agenda that I uh, focused on during my time. We all swim in our lane, and my lane was to open up government data and ensure that it could be more widely accessible to the American people. That included uh, commercial use of government data. And in healthcare, the biggest database that had previously been hidden from public view had been the linked longitudinal database that's the back end of the Medicare uh, system. Understanding whether or not millions of Americans were getting high value care or low value care and in what circumstance, all of the answers to that question sat there hidden uh, from public view and I was part of the effort to bring that to life. Two, we did put uh, $35 billion into electronic health records but we reserved 60 million of that for research and development. And as a champion for R&D, uh, we did include a seed grant to a team at Harvard, Zach Cohane and Ken Mandel, who gave birth to the Smart on Fire program, which we'll now learn to be the regulated law of the land for uh, interoperability. And so that little seed grant uh, gave us a, a window into internet-based data sharing. Uh, and then last but not least, under the Medicare Innovation Center, uh, we had some muscles in the law, the Affordable Care Act, that we hadn't fully exercised. One of those muscles was the opportunity to source new ideas for payment reform 
from the public rather than just the internal teams inside CMS, this sort of bottom-up approach to payment reform. And we launched a billion-dollar healthcare innovation challenge. I had the pleasure of announcing that uh, from the White House. And that gave rise to programs like the YMCA Diabetes Prevention Program, uh, fielding a equivalent of a clinical trial uh, that is now uh, concluded successfully so any doctor in America can prescribe uh, the Diabetes Prevention Program at, at the local Y. These three delivery reform concepts that I worked on from the government, moving us to value-based care from the bottom up, opening up government data for commercial use, thinking about internet-based uh, standards, are all core to the work we do at Care Journey. This vision of uh, open data partner to tap those data feeds and those regulated uh, API services and uh, marry them to organizations who are moving to value-based care. This is the sort of pre-competitive membership service that we uh, have brought to life and I'm, I'm passionate about. So to me, it's about all hands on deck, come together, let's all learn uh, together about what works and what doesn't so we can make the system better for everyone. Yeah, it's interesting, and I think what's striking about those three those three projects or those three uh, things you worked on as a CTO and then Care Journey is um, that idea of uh, commercial and government coming together, right? Private and public sector coming together. That's uh, right. Right. Um, I think it's very interesting. I think we used to call it tech transfer in the '90s, but now we're talking about data transfer, right? You hit the nail right on the head. In my view, and this gets to the theme we'll have throughout the conversation. There's so much room for innovation at the intersection of the public and the private sectors. And if we just focused on that, we could make the system work a lot better. So excellent. And so what is that? Tell us more then about what you wrote about in your book, The Innovative State, which it sounds like what we're what you're describing right now. What is that picture you see and and what does healthcare maybe look like particularly uh, when government uses technology and, and shares with the commercial sector? Yeah, so there's essentially uh, you know, a playbook, uh, for lack of a better term, on how if you were running uh, a more innovative state, uh, you, you might tap into the expertise of the people, whether you be in the U.S. or a foreign country or within a state, and, and you have four uh, tools that you could deploy uh, courtesy of the playbook. One, you might look at other data sets that you have in-house that you might open up. In the uh, Trump administration, this is a bipartisan concept, the Trump administration built on the work to open up Medicare data to now include all of the Medicaid encounters that had not really been uh, uh, organized or aggregated and published uh, prior. Similarly, Medicare Advantage plans are private plans, but we now have ab the ability to access uh, their data. So the pool of data sets becomes its own policy objective. And it's one that continues to evolve. Every agency of government holds some information set or could compel an information set to come forward that could help make the system work better. So point number one, think of data sets as a tool or a policymaking engine of government and encourage the industry uh, to adopt. Two, thinking about uh, the role of standards. The reason we have Apple Health connecting to EHR systems seamlessly at no interface fees is in part because of the role of government first as a convener, uh, but then eventually a regulator on 
voluntary industry consensus standards that can be referenced in regulation. So the second lever, in my view, is the opportunity to uh, identify what data sets do we need to make the system work better that are not held by the government but can be regulated by the government. So between doctors and hospitals and labs and all the rest, that muscle of a roadmap for standards development is, is a second part of the playbook. We can issue challenges and prizes and competitions like we did to bring the YMCA Diabetes Prevention Program alive. If the government spends less on traditional sort of services and, and, and contractors uh, with the funding that it puts forward and moves them towards this sort of outcomes-based uh, problem-solving approach, that could give birth to all kinds of innovation. It's what led to the self-driving cars that we think of as Google's technology or uh, Uber's technology. Uh, rather, the origin story is a challenge led by the government, uh, the Defense Department, the grand challenge to help uh, bring autonomous vehicles to life. And then last but certainly not least, we start to see a new muscle emerging in the public sector where we bring entrepreneurs and innovators to come in for tours of duty uh, to help modernize very specific parts of the government that need a little bit more help. If you've got a plug and you're, you can't you know, put it into the socket because it's kind of clogged up and broken, you're not going to have as much effect. So we've got to make that handoff uh, between the public sector and private sector uh, a more, more efficient and effective. And that in part is born by these uh, startup teams that can be fielded to solve specific problems. I don't know if that's too much detail, Michael, but that uh, uh, to, to, to the team that that was the, uh, the opportunity. Uh, I think that's interesting because uh, to your second point, you were talking about really having the standards be uh, coming from the private sector, the commercial sector. And like you said, the government is not sitting in their you know ivory tower trying to figure out a standard for something uh, that may be uh, obsolete by the time they get the regulation out. Uh, you're really you're really drawing from the public sector's not just uh, their technology, but their intellectual uh, capabilities, right? Yeah, and and the hard part in healthcare has been the sort of business model to date has not fostered the kind of industry collaboration on standards development. Even though we've had technical capability, the business challenges have made it harder to get those rooms of people together. And so we've had to have more of the nudging and encouraging, even if the work ultimately is done by the private sector, it's taken a lot of action in the government to kind of spur uh, that that kind of industry collaboration. So the work that we're seeing scale through regulation today had an origin story in a small table of EHR vendors and stakeholders saying, let's at least work together uh, because we know at some point we're going to have to do this. Let's get moving on it. And that did result in uh, the FIRE API standards uh, that we refer to as the Argonaut Project uh, standards that were born essentially out of the industry consensus efforts, but with a great deal of nudging uh, by the public sector. Very good. So uh, thank you, Nanish. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Anish Chopra, the first CTO in the United States and president of Care Journey. Uh, I'd like to ask Anish in our next segment what he means when he says we need a national privacy policy. For now, let's take a quick break and hear more from our producer, Michael McNutt. The preeminent national membership association for health IT guidance and collaboration, WIDI has earned the title of being an instrumental force in engaging public and private partnerships, facilitating discussions, and providing a collaborative voice as a national healthcare advisor to provide meaningful changes for the American healthcare system. 
Become a member and provide national leadership that enhances the exchange of clinical and administrative healthcare information. Join one of our various work groups where Weedy members collect input, exchange ideas, and make recommendations that inspire impactful and far-reaching change in our industry. Learn more about how you can make a difference at Weedy.org. We're back and we're talking with Anish Chopra, the first chief technology officer in the United States and president of Care Journey on another episode of the collective voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. So uh, we talked a little bit about the, the tools and the parties involved and, and how this innovative state works, uh, but we actually have a, uh, we have a healthcare crisis on our hands right now this year. Uh, Anish, could you tell us um, maybe what, with the progress we've had towards uh, freeing the data and that private-public uh, uh, partnership, um, how we might have, uh, how how we can see that illustrated in the pandemic, how it prepared us maybe for some aspects of of dealing with the pandemic, and then maybe project forward and say, you know, if we have to ever, God forbid, deal with another pandemic in the future, uh, we might be more prepared as we progress uh, towards that innovative state. Yeah, so so we've obviously witnessed the good, the bad, and the ugly during this uh, uh, period of time. Let me let me begin with an obvious statement: the very first CDC report on the pandemic, uh, and particularly the the clinical profile of the uh, COVID positive patients, was published in March, and it was about the results of the first few thousand cases uh, submitted to the CDC, and they noted something like no information on the clinical uh, characteristics of the beneficiaries were available at the time, meaning $35 billion of electronic health record investment, a decade of implementation, and the very first report on what we're dealing with in this pandemic was basically a goose egg. We know nothing but the bare minimum, the name, maybe the race, and even that was barely captured and, and, and the COVID positive test. When that happened, there had been this uh, immediate panic. Uh, we've got to, you, you can't manage what you can't measure and you can't build clinical protocols unless you understand what you're dealing with. And you certainly couldn't put in place the kind of triaging system that we needed when everybody was at risk of, of mortality, for example, uh, as opposed to those that had a particular set of clinical characteristics. So. Chicago, the, the health commissioner in the city of Chicago, in the spirit of innovative state, basically said, I'm going to issue a new order and I'm going to declare that electronic medical records are the minimum data necessary for COVID reporting. That had not been the case, if I may say, at the time. In fact, many of the HIE networks noted that it may have actually violated their terms of service. Uh, with respect to sharing information for public health because it was not for treatment purposes. Hmm. So uh, this order issued by uh, the city of Chicago was combined with a more traditional innovative state strategy, which is to sort of tap the expertise of the region to modernize. They deputized Rush University Medical Center, a member of Care Journey, by the way. Rush was given the assignment of standing up what is effectively a catcher's mitt so that when the order was made that electronic health records had to be submitted with the COVID positive results, there had to have been a place for those results to come in and get organized and used. And almost sort of MacGyver style, the team stood up a cloud-based uh, catcher's mitt 
that could bring in uh, medical records data. And as you could imagine, race and ethnicity had been incomplete 40, 50 percent of the time. That fell 70, 80 percent when they blended the medical record, which had more accurate information from the lab results that had been historically submitted. And so this concept of modernizing the technical infrastructure and collaborating, public-private partnership, leveraging standards, that all went into play in the spring. But fast forward to the fall, uh, the federal government has an army of uh, entrepreneurs and innovators inside building technical services called the U.S. Digital Services. It was the team uh, that was born after healthcare.gov had crashed and was fielded to sort of rescue the site and to put us on a stronger footing. There are now hundreds of people that are employed across the U.S. Digital Service at every major agency in the government. The Centers for Disease Control has now officially launched its version of a U.S. Digital Services team called Prime, and they're actively building better tools, open source tools, so that the long tail of uh, public health reportable conditions and, and, and stakeholders can do so in a more modern fashion. So you see both aspects of the reliance on open standards, the publication of data, as well as the uh, uh, sort of beefing up of capacity within the uh, agencies to sort of get better prepared on the other side, faster than it would have taken if we sort of took a, take a traditional government modernization approach. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a tremendous illustration of uh, the innovative state. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 come up uh, certainly during the pandemic with regard to uh, the the privacy ideas of the privacy of uh, individuals' health records. Um, but you've you've been very clear that in your ideas of how this should go, you also think there should be a national privacy policy. What what do you mean by that? How would that be different than what our HIPAA now gives us? Yeah, great question. So so let's sort of bedrock principle number one the consumer or the patient shall be the authority figure on organizing and sharing their health information. That's been on paper the right since the initial passage of HIPAA in the 90s. As a practical matter, that right has largely been in concept. In reality, it's been a royal pain for consumers to get access to their health information and to get it in a format that's usable so they can make better sense of it. That whole sharing data with patients uh, after the fact mentality has now been flipped upside down through regulation. So we now have consumers as the first authority figure empowered with applications they trust to connect to the health plans and their physician's offices and the local hospitals. Now, that's got positive attributes in that it's the right stakeholder uh, to, to put uh, at the center of the data movement. However, it does come with a bit of a challenge. Privacy protections today were largely about protecting you from how various stakeholders in the system share your information with each other, almost invisible to you. And it gives you some comfort that when two organizations share information about you, that they're doing the minimum data necessary to fulfill the mission objective, whatever that may be. So that protection of what's happening behind the scenes does not extend to you and more specifically applications you trust. 
if you take possession of your health information from the hospital, from the doctor's office, from the health plan, as they transmit that information to you, so too are they dissolving themselves of liability for whatever you do after you've taken possession. So the question on the table is, what does a privacy policy look like when I have control over my own health record? And it looks like the internet economy. We in this country do not have a baseline privacy law for internet-based applications. There is no privacy law governing your Facebook account or your use of Google services. Internet-based applications are entrepreneurial and innovative for sure, but they don't have any obligations other than the bare minimum, don't lie to your customer. If you told them you're not gonna sell the data to XYZ and you go ahead and sell it, yeah, lying to your customer is illegal, but that's basically the level of protection. So to answer your question, I believe we need to have baseline privacy principles. And if we're not going to get a national internet bill of rights, the next best thing we can do is establish industry self-regulation over these emerging consumer healthcare applications. And I co-chair the Karen Alliance. We uh, are working heavily uh, in a, in a pretty uh, uh, multi-stakeholder consensus-based fashion towards achieving self-governing principles and more specifically codes of conduct that if voluntarily adopted by applications will give consumers in some cases more privacy protection than what they get from HIPAA. And to give you one small example about that, today there's literally no HIPAA protections when an organization de-identifies your record. And all across the healthcare ecosystem, my de-identified health information is sold. Billions of dollars of healthcare data, uh, products and services flowing on the backs of consumer data that hadn't really been explicitly advertised that this was happening, nor was there really much uh, choice in the matter. Because theoretically, de-identified data, even if re-identifiable, is not subject uh, to HIPAA. In the Karen Alliance Code of Conduct, as an example, we've made it clear that if you wish to do anything with respect to de-identified data, in addition to the traditional privacy and security protections, you must disclose your policy, whatever that policy may be. And it could be that you do wish to tell your consumers that uh, you will be selling their data, uh, but that it, you'll at least be transparent about it and that you must constrain the vendors in your supply chain to the policy you put forward. So to me, a national privacy policy is both anchored on consumer data sharing in the, in the new API-based era, and two, to close some of the gaps that exist even in the legacy HIPAA environment. Very good, and, and, and what it sounds like is what you're working on with the Karen Alliance Code of Conduct, although you're focused on healthcare, um, it sounds like it could serve as a model for a much broader, for the entire internet economy, for privacy writ large. That That's right. We're, we actually borrowed a page from uh, the banking sector and the, uh, uh, the uh, education sector, where we've had a marketplace of applications that 
uh, you know, fintech, right? The, the 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 all the new technologies to help you, you know, open up more credit or uh, to access student apps, for example. And and so we, in many ways, borrowed from those models uh, to to sort of design the, the Karen uh, approach, and and we hope it'll apply more more broadly. We, we eventually will need some, uh, uh, you know, I do think the country will need some legislation. Uh, to offer baseline privacy protection, but we'll get there as we reach, hopefully, uh, industry consensus. Yeah, absolutely. And then the government will adopt what the what the industry has come together on. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So, uh, breaking away from your 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 work for a moment, just uh, talking to someone like yourself who has lived and breathed healthcare law and policy uh, for decades now. Any any broader, more global thoughts on on where our healthcare system? is headed uh, headed after COVID-19? Well, to me, the most important uh, sort of decision the industry has been grappling with is uh, what the um, payment system or business model looks like for healthcare. So one very obvious uh, problem in COVID had been uh, just the immediate drop-off in elective surgeries. And just to see the carnage financially that that wrought across the delivery system tells us how um, susceptible we are to shocks in the system. So this fee-for-service system we've been operating under that has been normal, you know, fairly consistent year over year, you, you could pretty much assume the same volumes from last year, maybe a little bit of a shift from the inpatient setting to the outpatient setting, a bit more physician visits or not. These, these, uh, relatively stable uh, industry economics were upended in COVID when we shut down the economy. However, for those physician practices that did participate in value-based care and had some stability through capitated arrangements, they were able to invest during this crisis almost on a dime to make sure they could continue to keep the staff organized for outreach, focus on making sure individuals had access to telemedicine and to deliver the care that they needed, even if they had to do so in a non-traditional way through telemedicine and the like. Mm -hmm. So to me, the big pivot coming out of COVID, or not really out, but as we sort of now feel it's a little bit more of the, the understanding of what the implications are for the industry is the sheer uh, uh, demand signal that is screaming from the provider community for that level of stability. And I think more stakeholders are going to run to value-based care faster than they would have had there not been the pandemic. And to me, that's the ultimate driver. As we know in technology and in data we all are in service to a business model in which the demand signal drives the services that we deliver in fee-for-service that could be improving documentation, efficiency in billing, uh, you know, maybe some of these scheduling services that, that will help drive uh, access. Whereas in the world of value-based care, it'll be much more about care coordination, proactive management, identifying the patients that are falling uh, short on their preventive services or, or have care gaps and, and that we can organize ourselves to close them. All of that is what we see in the uh, post-COVID era. And I think that will be a huge demand signal 
at just the right time, these new API-based standards come to market and enough of the database uh, on performance in the industry gets exposed. So we get a much cleaner picture about where we are delivering suboptimal care. You think of these three trends, open data, open APIs, payment reform, and you, you, you have to say that 2021 is going to be the year they're going to be brought together in a much more uh, organized fashion, and we're going to see the results. That's that's my hope. Very good, very good. I'll 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 tie I'll tie a ribbon on that hope. I'm I'm good with that. <laughs> uh, very good, Anish. Um, before we sign off, uh, do you have any uh, resources, websites uh, that um, you want to direct people to to give them more information or get them interested in some of the things we talked sure. about? Sure. So I, I I would say three things. One. I think if you want to learn about data sets, the best place to go is data.gov. And that is a nice front door to all the government data sets that the US has made available. And almost all major industrial countries around the world have now followed suit. That, that muscle of, of tapping public available data sets that you could incorporate into your products and services, I think it's a new muscle. I would encourage you to do that. Number two, I, I would strongly encourage you to take a look at the uh, smarthealthit.org. That, that is the Smart on Fire uh, protocol. And underneath that, you can learn about the Fire uh, API standards, the Smart on Fire authorization standards. Uh, within the Fire community, the Argonaut project is where Epic and Cerner and Athena and Allscripts and ECW all collaborate. Uh, to get to that industry consensus. And so all of that is available to the engineers out there who want to get a head start on where we're heading uh, on the data side. But I also would like you to pay attention to the Medicare Innovation Center. And uh, that's all uh, available at innovation.cms.gov. And the big uh, premise here is that, uh, you know, like they Gretzky often says, right, you, you go to where the puck is heading, not to where the puck is. Um, if you're looking to support uh, uh, doctors, hospitals, plans as we move towards this uh, post-COVID era, uh, I think you would be well served paying attention to the new direct contracting model within the Medicare Innovation Center to get a flavor for how the business model of healthcare will change to drive better value. And if you understand that demand signal, you understand the smart on fire API standards that are coming and you tap the data sets that are available, I do believe you'll be well positioned for your and your organization's success. Very good. Well, we got ourselves a homework assignment. Anish, this has been a great discussion. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, I've learned a lot. My pleasure. Have a great day and thanks for having me. Thank you. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.